Well, this morning you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we've been going through a series on stories that change the world, speaking of the parables of Christ. And uh, we're going through these parables one by one, taking one a week pretty much. And um, we find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 24 and 30, and then also 36 to 43 for the explanation of the parable. But it's important to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler over the earth. You have to understand that. The Old Testament tells us that time and time and time again. A couple examples, Psalm 24, 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In Daniel 5, 21, it says, the Most High ruled in the kingdom of men. So in his kingdom or kingship over the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine way, has allowed Satan, the enemy, the devil, and sinners a certain amount of freedom. That's just the world we live in. Now, despite this freedom, he is still the ruler. He is still the king. He is still the Lord. And every aspect and every division and phase of human history makes some implication that Jesus Christ is the ruler, and God in the world. There's no period of time when the kingdom of God is not in effect on earth. You have to understand that. If you don't understand that, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You just look at the politics of today and all the stuff that's going on. You can work yourself in a frenzy real quick. But you know what? Politics have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. And we have to understand that. Or we can get so caught up And wooed into all that, that pretty soon we're standing on corners with billboards and all sorts of things, thinking that somehow we're going to affect change in this world in which we live. We're not called to that. Now remember, the the kingdom of God, we have the universal kingdom. Go ahead and put it up there, Sam. That next graphic. We have the universal kingdom of God that goes from eternity past to eternity future. And then we broke it down and we said there's also what we called God's mediated kingdom. And that's basically pretty much since creation. We're going to be focusing on uh, Christ's first coming to his second coming. But the mediated kingdom is basically from the creation up through his second coming. And what we meant by that was that's when God mediates his rule, his kingdom, through others here on earth. When he created Adam and Eve, at first he mediated his kingdom through Adam. He said, you're going to be basically ruler over the earth. And obviously they messed up with the the fruit and Satan got thrown into the mix and everything. So it didn't pan out the way maybe it should have. But God was still mediating his kingdom. He's done it through the Old Testament, through the patriarchs, through the Old Testament forefathers. We see where he mediated his kingdom through the rule of priests and prophets in the Old Testament. And then it came a time in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus Christ actually came to earth. He became God incarnate. God came down and took on a fleshly body. And for that period of time, while Christ was on earth, he was mediating his kingdom. God was mediating his kingdom through his son. But then his son died on a cross and was raised and taken up to heaven. Well, what happens now? Well, in the early church, God mediated his kingdom through the apostles, through the disciples, who brought about the revelation of God's word for us in the New Testament. And there's going to be a future time when God will bring his rule back to earth. And he will rule and reign in an exalted, glorified way through Christ once again. That's what we call the millennial kingdom. That's the second coming, you've heard it spoken of, of Christ. He came the first time as a baby, grew up to be a man, offered himself as the Messiah, and said the kingdom of God is at hand. And what they do? They rejected him. So the kingdom couldn't come. You can't have a kingdom without a king. They rejected and killed the king. Therefore, the kingdom of God couldn't come at that time. 
So it was postponed. And even the people in Jesus' day, the disciples, they were curious about the kingdom because that's all he talked about. All the parables, all the, you know, the uh, Beatitudes, everything was talking about the kingdom. And so here in Matthew 13, we have seven parables laid out for us. And those seven parables tell us what's going to happen now. The king left. There's no kingdom here on earth, what they could see. What happens now? And so Jesus gathered his disciples together and he said, I'm going to tell you what happens during this time of my absence. And we call that the church age. It's referred to as the the mystery kingdom because it wasn't spoken of in the Old Testament. That's why when Jesus came as the Messiah and he started to minister to people, even people like John the Baptist were scratching their heads saying, wait a minute. I thought the Messiah was going to come and rule and reign and overthrow Rome and we were going to be liberated as Israel and he was going to, Messiah was going to take back and, and, and you know, kind of rule with a, a rod and fist and everything was going to set in order. Well, that's what they thought was going to happen when Christ came, but they rejected Christ. So God says, fine, we're going to do that. That plan's still in effect, but it's not going to happen right now. It's going to happen when my son comes back. And so right now we're living in this time called the church age. And that's why the disciples in Acts 1.6, they constantly asked him, Lord, will you tell us the time when you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel? When is this going to happen? And Jesus replied in verse 7, you know what, it's not for you to know. <laughs> in other words, it's none of your business. The Father's got it under control. Guys, just relax. It's going to happen the way the Father has planned. And that's why sometimes, you know, when we get all caught up and we, we start watching the news too much and we, you know, we, we get glued to politics and we, we start to fret, oh no, you know, and we, we, we just work ourselves into a frenzy. And pretty soon we think, oh man, you know, th- this world is just going to hell in a handbasket. What hope is there? And pretty soon we're all confused and we're downtrodden in our spirit and, and doubting God. And God's up there saying, hey, I got things under control. This is going just like I planned it. And sometimes we just need to back up and say, you know what? Okay, whether there's a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, whoever in the White House, that has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with what we're called to do as Christians. Now, if you're a big political fan here this morning, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. I'm not saying we shouldn't go and we shouldn't vote and do our citizens do and vote for the best possible candidate, candidate one that would uphold, uh, hopefully, the principles that we find in God's word. But, I mean, even the best of them don't really do that anyway. So there was a lot of confusion about the kingdom in Jesus' day and even now. There is. In Acts verse 11, chapter 1, the angel did tell the disciples this after Christ was taken up. He said, they said, the angel said this to them. He said, this same Jesus who is taken up from you, in verse 11, Acts 1, into heaven, he's also going to come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. In other words, this isn't over, guys. He's coming back. He will return. That's the second coming of Christ. And the disciples were told that the kingdom would not come in its fullness until Christ came back to earth. And that's when we're going to have the kingdom of glory and righteousness and absolute holiness. And he's going to be ruling and reigning with his saints here on earth for a thousand years. That's what the Bible speaks of. But right now, until that happens, we're living in this mysterious time. They didn't understand it in the Old Testament. They didn't really get it in the New Testament yet. They didn't know that there would be a kingdom that would tolerate both good and evil. That was just off their radar. They said, no, the Messiah is coming back. He's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to rule with an iron fist. And any wrongdoer or sinner, they'll just be snuffed out. Well, obviously, that's not the age in which we live in today. Just go out and look around, read the newspaper. There's all sorts of sin out there. They weren't aware that good and bad people were going to exist in this form of God's kingdom, his mediated kingdom known as the church age. 
And they had reason to believe that. I mean, they weren't just kind of coming up with that on their own. Remember, they just heard this parable of the soils. Remember? Jesus told them a parable of the soils, and it relates to the kingdom of God. And he says, you know what? There's going to be four different kinds of soils. So you have the wayside, the firm, hard ground there on the side. The seeds just kind of fall on that. The birds eat them or they get trampled under feet. You have the rocky soil that has a little bit of soil in it, but underneath that little bit of soil, if you've ever planted anything, there's a bedrock. And so when you initially, when you throw the seeds out there, boy, they're going to germinate and they're going to spring right up. They're going to even go up further than the other seeds initially that are in good soil because there's nowhere they can go down. But as soon as the sun comes out, the Bible says they get scorched and they die because there's no roots. And then there was the soil that was weedy, filled with weeds. And the weeds come up around the good seed and choke it out. And then he said the fourth kind of soil is the good seed. The good soil, where the seed goes into the soil. All the seed's good. All the soil is really the same, but it's the condition of the soil. That's the difference. And that relates to the heart. So when you hear the gospel, what's the condition of your heart? Are you stony? Are you weedy? Are you like the hard, impenetrable soil? Or are you good soil that's going to take God's seed in and let it germinate and let him have your way, have his way in your life? But that was foreign to them. They're thinking, wait, in God's kingdom, you're saying there's going to be actually soils that don't do what they were meant to do. They had a hard time understanding that. And so at this point in Matthew, they're saying, okay, we have three kinds of bad soil that's not prepared properly, and you have one kind that actually germinates and brings forth fruit, 160, 30 fold. And what they're asking themselves at this point in their discussion with Jesus is, what happens to the rejectors? What happens to the ones that are the rocky soil and the weedy soil and the impenetrable soil? What happens to them? You told us what happens to the good soil, but what happens to the other? And that's the question they're asking. And they probably have, first and foremost, in their mind, the Pharisees, who just finished calling Jesus a blasphemer and finished mocking him and finished calling him basically all his work is from Satan. So the disciples are going, yeah, I, they're, they're one of those bad soils, I guarantee it. What's going to happen to them? Jesus, tell us what's going to happen to them. Why aren't you just zapping them? That was their question. And they had a good reason to believe that. I mean, even think of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, when we looked at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, here's what John the Baptist said of Christ. Here's what he said. He shall baptize you with what? Fire. He will baptize you with fire. And fire is a symbol of judgment. It says this of Christ, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the granary, and he'll gather all the chaff into what? Into the unquenchable fire. And so they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. We see you doing the work. When are you going to do this? Here are these Pharisees pointing their finger at you, saying that you're Satan. Why don't you just go, boom, gone? Why don't you do that? That was their question. And even in the Old Testament, there's too many passages to list, but I'll just give you a couple. Isaiah chapter 2, the first couple verses there, it talks about how God is going to come in judgment. Jeremiah 31 Verse 33, Isaiah 11.3, Ezekiel 20.38. See, the disciples thought that Christ's kingdom would be set up immediately. And he would rule and reign with an iron fist. So when they asked the question, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Basically, what they're saying is, when are you going to zap all these people that aren't agreeing with us? They wanted it right away. And so to answer that question, that that first parable put in their mind, Jesus comes to this second parable. And 
let's just kind of, we're going to walk through it. There's, there's not a big outline there for you because it's a pretty simple story, as most of the parables were. Remember, a parable is something that we lay alongside something else, something physical, so that we can understand a spiritual principle. That's what a parable is. So look at verse 24 as we look at our text this morning. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, here's what he said, The kingdom of heaven, okay, well, first of all, we know that the the parable is about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. It's one and the same. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Heaven is where God dwells, so you could refer to the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of God. It means the same thing in Scripture. So it's about the kingdom of heaven, because they were asking these questions. And it says this, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven, first of all, and it says, basically, that a man sows good seed in his field. This parable teaches us about the age that we live in right now, the church age. He's going to talk about what happens during this time until Christ comes back. It says that this form of the kingdom will be like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Notice a couple things there. First of all, the man owns the field. The man owns the field. He didn't borrow it. He's not renting it. He owns it. And he sows what kind of seed? What does it say? Good seed, right? It's not bad seed. It's not mediocre seed. It's not average seed. It's not Home Depot seed. It's the best seed that you can get. It's good seed. I just say that because I've bought plants at Home Depot sometimes. They don't usually last that well. Nothing against Home Depot. Love the place, but their garden department has a lot to be desired. Well, what happens? So he goes out and he sows this seed. And we talked about that last week, sowing seed, and I'm not going to go into all that. It says in verse 25, here's what happens. But while men slept... So that tells us that this landowner is a pretty wealthy guy because he has people working for him. (laughs) But while the man slept, his enemy came. Well, now we enter a different aspect of the story. There's an enemy, and he sowed tares, or weeds, among the wheat and went his way. Ah, so living in an agrarian society, you know, um, today, if you don't like your neighbor, you might do something to them. But I doubt if you're going to plant weeds in their garden. Back then, that was a big deal. When you wanted to attack somebody, when you wanted to hurt somebody in their family, all you had to do is go out into one of their fields and sow tares or sow weeds when they were planting their crops. And they did it at night, not because they did it under the cover of darkness. And these people were sleeping because they worked hard all day. They weren't guarding the field. There was no reason to sit there and guard the field. They planted the crops, and they went back home, and they slept. And it says, while they were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. The tares were known by people of the the day, the time, as this plant called a darnel. That's what they were called. It's kind of a weedy grass. And so the enemy came, and he sowed tares among the wheat. That word where it says among, the enemy came and sowed tares among. The enemy just didn't come over to the field and go out here, I'll throw some weeds over there. No. He went through the field methodically and he sowed weeds right along the good seed that they just put down. Nobody would ever know. See, it wasn't uncommon to have weeds in your field. Just like it's not uncommon to have weeds in your garden, right? It's not uncommon to have weeds in your lawn. You've got to stay on top of it. You've got to go out there and, you know, if you, don't, if you, if you want to know how to take care of your, your weeds, talk to Al Swanson. I mean, he, he's got an eye for weeds. He knows exactly what to do with them. You kill them any way you can, because if you let them go, pretty much your whole yard is going to be all weeds. I was talking to a neighbor across the street the other day. He was out there. It was the guy that just, he lost a couple brothers uh, one about six weeks ago and another one just last week. So I was just talking to him a little bit and he's watering his grass. And uh, 
he's out there watering, and I say, hey, lawn looks good. So it's all weeds. He goes, but it's the greenest weeds I've ever had. He goes, so I just keep watering it. He goes, I gave up on the, he goes, it's all weeds. Look at it. And I started looking. I go, you know, you're right. He goes, you can't tell from the street. Who cares? You know, I just keep, keep watering it. It stays green. It stays green longer than the grass. Well, these guys came at night, and they sabotaged this guy's field. And talk about being in a world of hurt. I mean, think about it. You know, you're not going to go out the next day and look, oh, somebody sowed tares. No, it's going to take time for you to notice this. And so these tares would grow up, and when they sowed them among them, they did it very thoroughly. And that would really set off a family. It could, it could devastate a family. They didn't want any food to eat, because it's all sown with, with weeds. Well, look at what happens in verse 26. He says, but when the grain had sprouted... I don't know how long it takes grain to sprout, probably a couple weeks, and produce a crop, then the tares also appeared. Commentators say that this kind of weed that they actually sowed in there was a kind of weed that even when it initially came out of the ground, it looks like wheat. You can't tell. It looks just like a wheat plant, whatever a wheat plant looks like. (laughs) And so they're growing side by side, and the farmer's going, whoa, pretty hefty crop, this is going to be great. But then these tares or these darnels sprout like a little kind of a flowery looking thing. And all of a sudden you realize, whoa, that's not wheat. Those are all weeds in amongst the wheat. And so that's why it says there in verse 26 or verse 27, so the servants of the owner who are out there tending the field every day, watching their crops grow, thinking, yeah, there's going to be a great harvest, said to him, hey, wait a minute, after they noticed the weeds, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Is this the cheap seed with the weeds in there? What's going on? And they knew their landowner, their, their employer wouldn't do that, so it's kind of a silly question. But they say, how then does it have tares? They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. And then look at what he says. He said to them, an enemy has done this. He knew exactly what happened. An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, all right, you know what? Here's what we'll do. Let's get everybody together and we'll go out and we'll we'll pull out all the darnels, all the tares from amongst the wheat. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Well, look at what he says. No, (laughs) verse 29, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, he says. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, here's another subject that's introduced into the story, the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and we'll burn them, and then we'll gather the wheat into my barn. That's the parable. So he says, I don't want you out there trying to pull up the tares while they're still growing. We've got to wait till it's harvest time, and then we'll separate them because they're still fragile. They're still kind of growing, and you could maybe rip out some of the wheat, and that would hurt our potential crop. Just wait and let them become mature, and and we'll, we'll clear it out then. Don't worry about it. And then, jump down to verse 36. He tells a couple other parables there, which we'll be covering the next couple of weeks. But the explanation of, these, of the tares begins in verse 36. So jump down to verse 36. It says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Remember, he's, say, he's saying this, these first couple parables to the multitude, the people who are gathered around him, and there's a multitude of people there. That means lots of people. Um, were gathered there listening to him because he had done all these healings. They wanted to see who is this guy. All these people are listening to him, but as well as the disciples. They're listening to the parable as well. And remember, we, we talked about a parable. What is a parable meant to do? A parable is meant to conceal certain truths as well as reveal certain truths from certain individuals. And so he's speaking to a mixed crowd here. Well, in verse 36, what did he do? He sent the multitude away. He said, okay, that's it. I'm done for the day. <laughs> Going to go get some rest. See you tomorrow, whatever. 
And look at what his disciples, he went into the house, probably um, Simon Peter's house there uh, in Capernaum. And his disciples came to him and they said, you know what, we need an explanation of this parable of the tares in the field. Notice what they called the parable. He didn't entitle the parable anything. In your Bible, it probably says something like the parable of the wheat and the tares. Well, the disciples didn't call it that. They said, hey, we want to know more about the parable of the tares in the field. Because they knew that was the subject of the story. The subject of the story was what, on their minds, was what's going to happen to these tares? And so, you see here this this reaction of curiosity. And they want to know what what happens to these plants that grow up in this this bad soil. These three rejectors, and there's one good soil. What happens to them? I mean, if they were to probably go over to James and John, known as the, what, sons of thunder... What do you think he should do? Hey, just burn them, toast them, zap them. There's a lot of confusion, really, about, about this, this um, parable in a lot of different ways. But today, remember, this has to do with the kingdom in which, the age in which we live right now. How many times are you driving down the freeway or how many times are you watching something on the news? Or how many times you hear something some political person says or whatever, and you just, in your heart, you just, I just wish God would just get them. Just go get them, God. Come on, what, you know, I know it's the age of grace, but let's just, you know, just show your glory. Just once. Just zap one of those congressmen or senators or whatever. Just do one that's not following you. Just so your glory could be on display. Or how many times do you see wrongdoers profiting and getting away with it? And you just get sick to your stomach, and after a while you just say, you know what, I'm done with this. And you start praying like David prayed in the Old Testament, go get them, God. All right? Well, he begins to explain this parable because that's what they were thinking. They were thinking, okay, you know, we're just going to pull these tares right out right now. Let's judgment fall. There's a weed. Let's pull it out. And he says, no. The landowner said, no, don't do that. We're going to let these coexist for a while. Well, let's look at how Jesus explains this parable to these people. And he's only doing it to his disciples, remember, in the house. Verse 37. And he answered and he said to them, He begins to unfold the parable. He begins to explain it. He says, he who sows the good seed, notice the seed is good, is the son of man. So who is the sower? Son of man, Christ, right? It's Jesus. He's telling a parable about himself. In fact, he used it more than any title, the son of man, to refer to Christ. He used that title referring to himself more than any other title. Um, And so it refers to Christ. It's a messianic title. And he says the sower is the son of man, Jesus Christ. So he's the farmer who's sowing the seed. And he's sowing good seed. And he's doing it in his field. What's the field represent? Well, look at what verse 38 says. The field is the what? The world. The field is the world. So you have the Lord sowing good seed out in the world. That's the picture he's painting for him. The Lord is sowing seed in the world, which is his world, by the way, because he created it. God owns this world. He created it. That's why I like to have fun sometimes when you get the, the, I was going to say tree huggers, but the the people who are so concerned with our uh, environment and all this stuff, when they come to your door, when you sign the 
petition, you know, to save all the trees or to save the whales or to save the fish or to save whatever, the blue-eyed frog or whatever it might be. I mean, a myriad of things come to our house all the time. And I always say, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to do that. I'm not interested in that. And they always look at me, oh, you're not? You don't want to save the planet? I'm like, why? Jesus says when he's going to come back, he's going to destroy it with hellfire and brimstone. It's all going to be gone. He's going to burn it up. That's what Jesus Christ is going to do when he comes back eventually. This place is going to, that we know today is going to be gone. It's going to be vaporized. And about that point, they're like, you really believe that? I said, well, that's what the Bible says. You want me to show you? Well, no, no. So you're not going to sign this. No, I'm not going to sign You know. But I say, you know what the good part is? is the good part is he's going to create a whole new earth and a whole new heaven. You know why you can be part of that if you know Christ and about that time, they're like, I'll see you later, you know. They're going to the next neighbor. So the field here is the world, and he created it. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and trash the, the environment and all that. We need to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But even the creation, Romans 8.22, says the whole creation groans for his return. They're groaning for him to come back. So the Lord is the one who's out there sowing good seed in the world, and the world belongs to him because he made it. He planted right from the beginning, Adam and Eve in it. And it went on from there. And even though Satan has had his heyday, he still, God still owns everything. He created it, and he eventually will reclaim it. Well, what's the seed represent? Look at what he says in verse 38. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Hmm, that's interesting. This means the Lord sows the children of the kingdom where? In the world, right? Now, the problem people have with this passage sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard it explained this way. I had it taught to me this way originally in school. And it kind of made sense. And I've heard people talk on the subject of the church, and they say, well, you know, you got wheat and tares in there, and they make this whole thing about the church. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say he sows children of the kingdom in the church. That's not what it says. It says the Lord sows good seed. What's the seed? In his field, which is the world, the seed is sons of the kingdom. And where does he do it? He puts them in the world. If you make this the church, you're going to run into a world of hurt in a little while. You're not going to, it's not going to make any sense. The parable is just going to, the, the wheels are going to fall off. So the world doesn't mean the church. The world means the world. <laughs> That's what it means. So the Lord said the field is the world, and he meant, if he meant that field to be the church, he would have called it the church. I mean, surely he knew, you know, all those things. But think about it. If we, if we want to conclude that this is the church, what do you do when the servants ask, can we pull out the Darnells? Can we pull out those weeds that are growing in the field? And what's he say? The landowner says, no, 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 don't do it. Let them there. Well, what happens to any basis for church discipline then? What happens when we come to a point in time where somebody within our own congregation is found to be unrepentant in a certain sin and won't deal with it even though they're confronted. The Bible in the book of Matthew is very clear. It says you have to protect the purity of the church. And to do that, there's such a thing as what's called church discipline. So when someone's found to be in a way that's contrary to the way of Christ, the Bible says, first of all, you go to him as a brother or sister in the Lord, and you say, hey, you know, brother or sister, whatever it may be, um, you know, what you're doing is not, it's not right. You know, you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife. That's not a biblical thing to do. That's not a God-honoring thing to do. You're a member of our church. I'm encouraging you to break this off, to come clean, to repent. That's the first stage. And they say, no, my life, I'm going to live it the way I want. Then you take two or three witnesses with you. 
You go to the brother again, you say, hey, we're just here, we all know about this, it's not good, it's not helping the cause of Christ, it's not helping, you know, to, to protect the church here, you're, you're, you're doing something that's dishonoring to Christ, you need to repent. No, I'm not going to do it. Eventually, what happens is, you bring that person before the, the basically the church, I mean, it goes through the elders, and then eventually you would bring that person who's unrepentant before the church. And literally, there comes a point in time where you say, you know what, you're not welcome here anymore. That's what has to happen. Why is that? Because it protects the purity of the church. But the goal in church discipline is always restoration. It's always restoration. You don't just find somebody in a sin and go, you're out of here. No. Sometimes this takes years to work through. But the goal is restorative in nature. It's not condemning. But see, if you think this is the church in this parable, well, it says a landowner says you can't do that. So it can't be the church. It's what it is. It's the world. So he basically paints this picture for them. We're the children of the kingdom, those who have come to Christ, those who have been saved. We're subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the parable says that we've been planted in this world, in his world. That's the picture. Not of the world in the church, but of the church in the world. That's the picture he's painting. So we're not here by accident. We're planted by the Lord where he wants us to be. That's why sometimes I get frustrated with Christians who they come to church on Sunday, and basically that's it. Um, they don't have any, you know, if they're not going to church, if they're not in some spiritual meeting, they don't have any contact with unbelievers at all. And the reason is, well, you know, we're supposed to be separate from the world. Well, yes, in your behavior (laughs) and in your nature, definitely be separated from the world. But that doesn't mean that you break off all contact and go become a monk and live in a monastery somewhere. He says that he's actually planted us in the world. Why are we planted in the world? Well, there's a couple reasons real quickly. First of all, to be perfected as saints. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a while, the Lord will make you perfect. John 16.33 says, In the world you shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. Don't get bummed out because I have already overcome the world. James chapter 1 verses 2-4 to talks about the trials that we experience in this world. So he plants us in the world because, you know what, that's going to make us stronger Christians. It's going to perfect us, more mature as saints. But it's also, a second reason, is that we can go out in the world and we can persuade sinners to come to Christ. See, this is the problem with the modern-day church movement, church growth movement. Their idea is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have church on Sunday, but we're going to invite the world to come into our church, and then we're going to lower everything down and dumb everything down, the music and the message and everything, and just make it kind of a happy, feely, good, good, good time together. Nobody's getting offended. We're not talking about sin or condemnation or the blood on the cross or, oh my gosh, none, none of that stuff. Because we don't want to offend anybody because we want them to come back next week. And that's how so many churches do church today. And in their mind, they're thinking, well, we're throwing the net wide. But I honestly believe that that approach not only dishonors the Lord, but it dishonors Scripture. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to come here as saints, as believers in Christ, and be edified, be built up with the teaching of his word through worship, through fellowship, through prayer, through giving. All those things build us up as Christians. And then we walk out of this room, and we go out into the world, and that's when we're called to persuade sinners to come to Christ, not to come to church. Now, does that mean that Unbelievers are not welcome here? No. Does that mean that we never share the gospel here? No. Of course we do. Do it every Sunday. Because we know 
that even amongst us as a small church, there are people who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. And that's okay. You're welcome here. But you're never going to see us lower our standards so that you'll feel comfortable. Because we're not really concerned about your comfort. Our comfort stops basically where the seats. When we bought these seats, we said, these are going to make people feel comfortable while they're sitting there through Steve's long sermons. So, you know what? That's about it. After that, you know, we just want to honor the Lord and worship Him. If His word offends you, so be it. We're not going to apologize for that. We don't want to be offensive. But sometimes that happens. So we get perfected as saints. We also persuade sinners. I'd ask you this morning, are you doing that? When you leave this place this morning, are you walking out to the world and looking at it as Jesus looked at it? Who did Jesus spend most of his time with? Publicans, sinners. That's why they condemned him, basically. In John 17, Jesus said this, I pray not that you should be taken out of the world, but that you should keep them from what? The evil one. See, we're supposed to be in the world. That's where he planted us. That's the field. Next, look at the tares and the enemy. In verse 68, it tells us who the tares are, what the tares are, and who the enemy is. It says, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the what? Wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the who? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age. So who are the tares? What do the tares represent? And who is the enemy? Well, he, he says right there, basically, the tares are children of the wicked one. The devil. The enemy is the one that sowed them. He's the one that came by night and put... Seeds of weeds everywhere in the owner's field. <clears throat> and the article there describing the wicked one is very emphatic in the original language. It, <clears throat> it means he is absolutely wicked. There's no other wicked one like this wicked one. And he's where all this wickedness Begins. You know, in the world, beloved, there's only two kinds of people. There's only two kinds of people. This, this isn't rocket science. This is very basic theology. There's children of the kingdom, those who have come to God through Christ, repenting of their sin and trusting Christ alone for their sin. And there's children of the wicked one. So if you're not a child of the king, if you're not a child of the Lord Jesus Christ through submission to his lordship and in your life, then you're a child of the devil. I mean, it's that simple. I didn't say it. That's what he says. Don't get mad at me. So if you're not on God's team, you're on Satan's team. And you're functioning as one under his control. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the unsaved are directed, it says this in verse 2, by the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. In John 8, he said to the leaders of Israel, he says, you know what, you're of your father, who? The devil. Christ didn't beat around the bush when it came to identifying who was on whose side. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in wickedness. See, the, the enemy is the one who comes and oversowed the good seed with the bad seed. And you see that even from creation. God created everything, and what did he say? He looked at everything, and what did he say at the, when he was done? It is good. He didn't say, whoops, I made a mistake there with Eve and Adam and Noah. You know, no, he said it's good. See, that's a very fundamental question that people ask today. Where does evil come from? Where does bad, evil people, where, where does it, God do that? No. God isn't the creator of evil or bad or Sinful things. That doesn't come from God. That comes from the evil one. So the world then is inhabited by both subjects of the king and subjects of the enemy. This was 
in their mind, just incomprehensible. They're saying, you mean God's kingdom on earth is going to have good people and bad people? Why doesn't God just zap the bad people? We feel that way sometimes. It's going to, they're going to be co-mingled together. Sometimes the enemy even sows tares within the local church. That's why you have church discipline. That's why you have an avenue to pull them out. And we know that because in Matthew chapter 7, these heart-wrenching verses 21 and 23, we hear about people coming to Christ on the day of judgment. And they're saying, Lord, Lord. Haven't we done this? Haven't we taught Sunday school? Haven't we played on the worship team? Haven't I painted the church? Haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? Haven't I fed the hungry? Haven't I done all these things? In your name. And his his answer to those people is, you know what? I'm sorry, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. What were they trusting in? Not in the grace of God. Not in the work of Christ. They were trusting in their good works. And they were part of physically, not spiritually, but physically, obviously, some form of a church. But in the end, they were sent to hell because they weren't real. They were like the, 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 the tear that's growing up with the wheat, and you're looking at them both, and you're going, man, what a great crop. Can't even tell the difference until the weed comes out. Satan works overtime in that area. And the Bible instructs us as Christians within a local church, when we find a tear within the local body, you pull it out. You pull it out. Well, that brings us to verse 39. It says, The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest, it tells us what the harvest is too, is the end of the age. Why do you think Jesus says that? Well, he says it because his disciples were ready. He's telling them this story, and they're, they're sharpening their sickles, man. They're, they're getting ready to just go out there and hack the, the, the weeds down. And he's saying, no. Now is not the harvest time. See, when we see wickedness in the world and the grief that it causes people, and it causes to the Lord's church and the Lord's work and the Lord's purposes and, and everything. You know what? Sometimes we just step back and we say, God, why don't you just come down and zap it? Take care of it right now. Get rid of these people. Even in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we see under the altar saints who had been slain. These are people who were killed on behalf of Christ. Their faith in Christ. And they're crying out to God, how long will it be before you judge the earth? And what God is telling his followers, what God is telling us today, because we live when this is really going on, he's saying, don't be impatient. Don't be impatient. The harvest is going to come. But you've got to wait. You've got to wait till the end of the age. That word there, the end, the, those words, the end of the age, appears several times in Matthew. It speaks of the ultimate judgment. That final time when God judges the world. So you see in verse 28 of the parable, when the servant asked the householder, the landowner, hey, do you want us to go rip out these weeds? He says, no. <laughs> you know what? We're going to wait till they grow up. We're going to wait till they mature. We can see that there's weeds there. Do you want us to pull them out? No, not yet. That's what the landowner says. Because if you pull them out, you could maybe potentially pull out some of the wheat, and I don't want that to happen. You know what the point that he is making here is very clear? He's simply saying that if we go around trying to judge the world as Christians, what's going to happen? We're going to end up condemning maybe even some Christians in the process. Because we don't have divine insight into somebody's heart. See, God did not call the church of Jesus Christ to judge the world. Do you understand that? 
If you, if you get nothing else, please get that. We're not called to judge the world as Christians. He doesn't want us in a position of political power destroying unbelievers. <laughs> because we don't have the discernment to know who is and who isn't, to be honest. Because they both, as they're growing up, they look the same. We have not been called to attack the world. Some churches don't even understand this at all. That's all they do is attack the world. It's not the church's function to start pulling out the terrors of the world. Because they're growing together. Satan is going to continue to sow and to oversow in the church because he loves to deceive. That's what he is. He's a master at deception. But it's not our responsibility to try to find out those tares and rip them out. That's not what we're called to do. And whenever the church turned into that kind of an organization, you can be a buff of, of history at all. You can go back and you read about, uh, you read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, all those Christians who were killed in the name of religion. During the Crusades, I mean, there, were, there was times in history when organi- religious organizations would slaughter thousands of people. Thinking, you know what, this is God's judgment on you for not following our way. And their way wasn't even the right way. <laughs> in one village alone, they trampled 3,000 Jewish people with their horses because they were viewed as apostates. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what, when, when it comes to our attitude toward the world as Christians, we need to imitate Christ's patience. This isn't the age of judgment. What was the Lord Jesus Christ's attitude towards sinners? He treated them with meekness. He treated them with grace. He treated them with love and kindness. I mean, think about it. Even the Last Supper, he's sitting there with Judas the guy who's going to betray him and turn him over to the enemy for some money. I mean, he could have just zapped him right there. I mean, he could have done anything to Judas he wanted to. And he could have been justified in doing it because he was a deceiver. But he didn't do it. He didn't devastate Judas. He continued to reach out to him. He continued to be gracious toward him, to be patient, to be tolerant, to be loving We're to act that way. And I mean, we all get frustrated with people. I said something to somebody the other day. We were just talking about things in general. And I said, you know what? I said, ministry would be fun if it wasn't for people. (laughs) And they kind of looked at me shocked. You know, I said, it's true. Me included. I mean, you know, we're we're fallen individuals. And so sometimes we, we get mixed up in this whole mess. But we need to practice God's patience. The Lord knows which people will eventually be in the kingdom. He knows. In Acts 18.20, he told Paul, I have many people in this city. He knows exactly who's going to be saved and who's not in Redwood City. We're not to make that call. We are, as a church, to act uh, to, to reach out to people with the gospel of Christ. We're not to go out and and rain our own judgment on ungodly people. I mean, sometimes you hear people talk of our president, President Obama. They talk about him with such a vile hatred. I mean, do you understand that this man is obviously lost? That this man one day will end up in hell? Unless he repents and comes to Christ? And say the same thing for his administration, the, the whole bunch. And it doesn't matter whether he's Republican, you can say the same thing about George Bush. I don't care what the name is. We're all fallen beings. We all need a Savior. And sometimes we're too quick to judge people. We need to know that God is there for them and he wants them to put their faith and their trust in him. And if we try to exact that judgment, we don't have the divine nature. We can't see who's right, who's wrong, who's a Christian, who's not. That's why sometimes you can't question people's motives. Sometimes somebody would do something, and rather than just saying, well, that was nice, they they did that. Sometimes 
what we do is, well, you know, why did they do that? What's their motivation? You know, and we get all in their face. About, and I'm thinking, you know, we don't know somebody's heart. We're called to follow Christ, to be gracious. Always look for the best in people. And even when you see the worst, handle it with grace. Well, the last thing here is these, these reapers are identified as angels in verse 39. He says he's going to say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn and then gather the wheat into the barn. See, Christians are called only to act as a righteous influence, not as a condemning influence to the world. We're to preach against the world's sins, but we're to love the sinner. We're to be gracious and patient with them. That's what the Bible calls us to do. And God's going to gather all this together. Jesus is saying through this parable, you know what, you're the, you're, you're the, the sowers, and I, I have my angels who are going to do the reaping. You just go, you sow the seed. Because that's what we're to do. We're to follow Christ. Christ is obviously the sower in this parable, but we're to follow him. We're to go out into the world and we're to sow the seed of the gospel through our lips, through our life. And the weeds or the tares are gathered together and they're burned. So they finally get their answer. What's going to happen? They're going to be burned. I mean, what a horrible death. I, I, I heard, read in the paper, um, I think it was last week, there was a, a mother who was having some mental problems and she lit her house on fire and her and her little baby burned to death while her little girl was downstairs. She got out. But I'm thinking, what a horrible way to go. I mean, I burn my little finger and it's like, ah, you know, it hurts. It hurts for days sometimes. Can you imagine your whole body being engulfed in flames? in a place where the fire is unquenchable. In other words, you don't just go to hell and burn up. No, it, it continues for eternity. It's not a happy party place where Satan's you know, down there partying with everybody. It's not that. The Bible says it's utter darkness. Hell is a place of utter darkness. And that's where you end up if you do not put your faith, your trust in Christ. Fire there is the imagery of hell. And hell is a very real place. It's not pleasant to talk about, but it's real. And he says there, Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And what's the application here? It's kind of simple. He covers it in the last verse. He who has ears, let him hear. What's that mean? I don't know if you remember when you were little and you weren't listening in school and the teacher, you know, Stephen, you better listen, or whatever. That's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, don't don't miss this. You better listen. Jesus is asking at this point that all of us look at our own lives and we ask ourselves these questions. Am I wheat or am I a tare? Am I part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the enemy? If you're a child of the enemy, listen. This is a time of patience and grace right now, but God's judge is coming. You don't want to meet Jesus Christ at the second coming unless you've trusted in him. Trust me, because he's not going to come as some lovey-dovey savior. The Bible says that he's going to come and he's going to rule with a fist of iron. And judgment will fall. If you're a child of the kingdom, if you're a believer here this morning, then this message is for you too. Are we out there influencing the world for the cause of Christ? Are we out there playing in the world, having it influence us? That's the question. Very simple. Are you planted in the world for good and for God and for salvation? I pray you are. Father, we ask this morning that you would work in our hearts, Lord, as we looked at this second parable 
Lord, it answers a lot of questions. I'm sure it did for the disciples. And Lord, I can't help this morning think that there may be one here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you. Maybe they've been raised in a certain kind of a church. Maybe they're putting their faith in that. Maybe they're putting their faith in works. Maybe they're creating a God in their own image. Or who knows? But Lord, the Bible is very clear that it says that anyone who doesn't trust in your son for their salvation, doesn't trust in the grace and the forgiveness that's offered through Christ, that that person will face judgment one day. And it'll be a righteous judgment. But the Bible says that we've all been born sinners. In a way, we're all born a weed. We're all born a tear. And just like you can't take a a weed in your garden and just snap your fingers and turn it into a tomato plant, that would be considered a miracle if you could do that. Well, that's what God does. God takes us, weeds, those who come to him in repentance, turning away from their sin and trusting in Christ. He supernaturally and divinely, the Bible says, transforms you into something that you, you weren't before. He puts the righteousness of Christ on you. That can happen to you this morning if you're willing to cry out to God. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand what this pastor's saying. Help me to get it. Help me to trust in you and you alone for my salvation. And for us believers, I ask that you would motivate us to practice the patience of God. That you would motivate us to Go out from this place and do the sowing of your word, the gospel, into people's hearts so that we too could see them transformed into what you would have them to be. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.